0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20, Exodus chapter 20. We want you to have a Bible to follow along and a Bible to keep, actually, as our gift to you. So if you need a Bible, these brothers have some. They're going to make their way to the back, get their attention, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. Marked for you at Exodus chapter 20. A few years ago, Yahoo Finance published an article about the approach to church... Being taken by entrepreneurial Christian leaders. It said, Craig Groeschel launched Life Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. By doing market research with non-churchgoers in the area, and he got an earful. They said churches were full of hypocrites and were boring. He recalls. So he designed Life Church to counter those preconceptions with lively, multimedia-filled services in a setting. That's something between a rock concert and a coffee shop. The article went on to say, Once established, some ambitious churches are making a big business out of spreading their expertise. Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, formed a consulting arm called the Willow Creek Association. It earned $17 million in one recent year, partly by selling marketing and management advice, to 10,500 member churches from 90 denominations. Our entrepreneurial impulse comes from the biblical mandate to get the message out, says Willow Creek founder Bill Hybels, who hired a Stanford MBA to handle the church's day-to-day management. Willow Creek's methods have been lauded in a Harvard Business School case study. Hybels' consumer-driven approach is evident at Willow Creek, where he shunned stained glass, Bibles, or even a cross. The reason? Market research suggested that such traditional symbols would scare away non-churchgoers. Like Joel Osteen, Hybels packages a self-help program with a positive message intended to make people feel good about themselves. When I walk out of service, I feel completely relieved of any stress I walked in with says a 38-year-old sales manager who switched to Willow Creek because he found his old church too stodgy. One commentator insightfully said of all of this, if it aims to make people feel good about themselves, it cannot be challenging, instructive, or edifying. And how can it be edifying in places where there is no cross and no Bible? Worship has ceased to be a living relationship with God and has indeed become a glorified self-help assembly as if the lesson to be taken from the gospel is in any way consonant with the language of self-help, which suggests a bizarre preoccupation with the self and autonomy in these churches that is itself spiritually dangerous. If people are going to church to feel good about themselves, they have surely got the wrong ideas about our Lord and his church. The Lord does not ask us to feel good about our wretched present state, but calls us to take up our cross and to be perfect as his Father is perfect. This is the good for which we should yearn, rather than the pitiful, self-important, self-congratulatory, self-satisfaction of feeling vindicated by shallow, sentimental pop worship. A pastor friend of mine recently wrote on his Facebook page, If you judge congregational worship by how you feel when it's over, you might be worshiping yourself. And much of this preoccupation with self in worship has centered on music. In a culture where the quality of worship is judged by the intensity of our experience, it follows that music has become central in worship. In fact, almost without exception, what I hear when I travel or what I see when I read is worship leader, the title worship leader, being equated with music leader. But you see, friends, instrumental music is just one important component of worship and not even the most important. In fact, did you know that there is no mention of musical instruments in the worship of the New Testament church in the Bible? There's only one mention of musical instruments in the entire New Testament. And that's a mention of harps in the book of Revelation. So you could have a genuine Christian worship service without any instruments at all. Now, not that I would want to do that. In fact, let me say how much I very much appreciate the talented musicians that God has given us and how they labor each week to facilitate our musical worship. But even so, you could have complete and genuine worship services without ever having an instrumental accompaniment. God mandates singing in the New Testament, but not instruments. And most churches of the first century were probably not able to do what we do with our instruments. Now contrast that with another component prescribed in Scripture for the worship of God's people when they gather. Singing is prescribed. Prayer is prescribed prescribed scripture reading is prescribed and also preaching while you can worship without instruments preaching is central to new testament worship and so friend i tell you if you find yourself getting worked up about music perhaps rethink your priorities regarding worship and let's while we're at it get the terminology straight The music guy is not the worship leader. He's the music guy. If there are worship leaders at our church, it's Pastor Rich, Pastor Larry, and myself. Since as overseers of the church, we oversee all aspects of our worship, our dear brother Anthony is the music leader. Today, I'm afraid we have people worshiping worship or worshipping how they feel in worship. More than the God who ostensibly we're worshipping. Now this all matters to me because it matters to God. Contrary to what many apparently believe today, God cares how he is worshipped, not just that he is worshipped. Some of you will remember the story of the two sons of Eli, in the first part of your Bible, Nadab and Abihu, here's what the Bible says about them. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord <coughs> Excuse me, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. R.C. Sproul commented on this passage, One aspect of the modern church that most saddens and concerns me is that believers are no longer encouraged to have a healthy fear of God. We seem to assume that the fear of the Lord is something that belonged to the Old Testament period, but it's not to be part of the life of the Christian. But fear of God involves not simply a trembling before His wrath, but a sense of reverence and awe because of His glorious holiness. Even though we are living on the finished side of the cross, the fear of the Lord is still the beginning of wisdom. And God is still a consuming fire and a jealous God. And when we come into His presence, we are to come as children, as those who have been reconciled. But there is to be a godly fear inspired by respect for the one with whom we are dealing. Unless you think he is off the mark in that comment, in your New Testament, In Hebrews chapter 12, the Bible says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably. And what does that imply, friends? If we're being told to worship God acceptably, it implies that it's possible to worship God unacceptably, right? And what does acceptable worship look like? With reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And as we continue then our series in the Ten Commandments, today we're going to see that God we're going to see that God cares so much about how He is worshipped that He made it the subject of His second of the Ten Commandments. Verse 4 of Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them. Or worship them. I'll try to demonstrate how this command applies not only to explicit worship of idols, but also some of the practices that perhaps many of us have not considered. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we thank you that we're here, because we're here by your divine appointment. You've arranged the circumstances so that we can be, you've given us the godly desire to be. We're here before you with your people with open Bibles and open hearts. Lord, help us to receive your truth and help each of us to be willing to change. Lord, we've got to be willing to change. Oh, make us such. Change every day, every week into the image of the Lord Jesus. Grant that to us this day so that we may better glorify you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, two weeks ago, we saw the first of the Ten Commandments from verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That commandment is about who we worship. And verse 4 turns now to how we worship. The first commandment is about the object of worship. The second is about the manner of worship. So we have inserted for you in your program, as each week, an outline for the message. I encourage you to take that out. Where we say first of all, God must be worshiped as creator. That is he must be seen as the one who made all things and therefore no one and no thing that he has made is to be worshiped instead of or even with him. He's the maker of it all. Therefore take nothing that he has made And make it an object of worship or even with the worship of the true creator. God must be worshipped as creator. So I say in the outline, we must not engage in direct idolatry. Now by direct, I mean material, open, outward idolatry. And in this sense, the idol is something, is some materialized object of worship. The worship of some human person, some material object, or anything that's supposedly representative of a god. This is blatant idolatry, and it's on the first order of what is forbidden in this commandment. Man-made images have always been used in religious rites and rituals throughout human history. From the very early days of human history until the present, images and idols have been found. These images were the imagination of people who desired to represent their gods in a way that made sense to them. They were, in the words of the Apostle Paul, when he preached to pagan philosophers in Athens, they were gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. And in discussing the wickedness of humanity in Romans chapter 1, the same Paul says of these people that although they claimed to be wise, they became fools They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, we should not think that these idols were the gods themselves. They were rather the representations of the gods that these people had created in their own minds. They were made out of all kinds of things from wood to stone, gold, silver, and other kinds of metals. And such idols originated from the inborn desire in every person for things that they can see. It's easier for them to experience and to identify with. And so for many, idols provided and still do provide a connection with their God. It gave them a conception in their mind of who they were talking to. Somewhat similar to the difficulty of talking on the phone versus talking face to face. But this prohibition recognizes the danger that in making an image... We will distort the true character of God or begin to worship the image itself as God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, just before God's people are going to enter into the promised land, and the Ten Commandments are going to be recited for a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5, just before that, the Lord reminds them of how serious this issue is and how dangerous it is. The Lord declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below when you look up to the sky and you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. You see what the Lord is saying there. These things, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of these created things, they've been allotted, they've been assigned, they've been apportioned for your good, but not for your worship. And in using them to represent God, you may begin to think of God as these persons or things. In fact, in Psalm number 115, we are warned that whatever your idols are, you become like. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. In using images to depict God, you may begin to worship the images rather than the God they are to represent, so God forbids it. We must not engage in direct idolatry. And, I say in your outline, we must not engage in indirect idolatry. In addition to forbidding idols in worship, the implication of the second commandment of the ten is that there is to be no man-made aids in worship. Israel was to worship God on the basis of his revelation to them, of his revealing, making known to them who he is and what he is like and, in fact, what he likes. They were to worship him on the basis of his revelation to them, not on the basis of anything else or through the means of anything else. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as I just read a portion from, Moses reminded the people of These circumstances that they had come through and the experiences that they had. And just before the portion that I read to you a bit ago, it says this. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God to hear his words so that you may learn to revere him and may teach them to your children. Notice that at the heart of the worship of God was his commands that you hear and that you teach. Moses warned them, when God spoke to you, as we saw earlier from Deuteronomy 4, you did not see a form or an image. You heard only words. Therefore, do not go out and make a form form or an image. Obey his words. So what violates the commands of his word in worship? Ah, That could be a whole series. But just a few for us to consider human-centered worship, man-centered worship. That is constructing worship in a way that makes man, humanity, the main concern. Friends, I am here to tell you that I have read enough and I have observed enough in our day in the evangelical church that this kind of idolatry is rampant. Worship is big business. And when I say business, I mean money, business. Worship is big business. Seminars, conferences. People just love it. They just eat it up. But you know what's not big business? At the same time, so-called worship is big business. Theology is not. Doctrine is not. So if you have a lot of people worshiping, but very few people studying then it leaves you to wonder who it is we're worshiping and in what way we're worshiping. And is it the way that he has revealed and made known that he likes because of what he is like? So human-centered, man-centered worship or humanly or man-constructed worship using human tactics because they work in worship. Tactics. I'm not making this up. I wish I was. Using tactics to get the crowd going. Just this past week, I saw this. And it came from the lips of one of the young music leaders. When he had us, not me, but he tried to get us all jumping around. And they were just playing secular music and they were just having a lot of fun. And there's nothing particularly wrong with the fun uh, or even secular music in appropriate contexts. But then he moved immediately from that into a time of musical worship. And he said, we did all of that. He said this. We did all of that so that it would break down barriers for you so that now you will be able to worship the Lord. So I did all of that with that music to kind of get you going so you could really get going in worship. If, if, you, if you care to learn where the pragmatism, that is, if it works, it's okay, that's what pragmatism is. Whatever works. If you care to learn where that came from, just Google Charles Finney. Charles Finney, a heretic Who really gave the modern church this idea of pragmatism. This young man is doing Finneyite church and he doesn't know who Charles Finney is. Or here's another. Worship that involves false teaching. Like the health, wealth and prosperity gospel. Which is a false gospel. Or worship that ignores the body of Christ. New Testament worship, the scriptural worship... Is worship congregationally. God's people together. And taking those things. That God designed to be done together. And then taking them into ourselves. As private issues. Did you know. You can't baptize yourself. Did you know. Biblically you can't just pick the person. You want to baptize you. And then go to the lake or your swimming pool. And then did you know that. Because that's a church ordinance. It's something God's people do together. And friends, idols can be manufactured in our hearts as well so that we worship someone or something other than God. Ezekiel warned us of this. These men have set up idols in their hearts. And so here's just a quick list of the summary of this kind of heart idolatry that goes on within us. We can worship ourselves. Jesus said Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The implication here is if you do not deny yourself, you're making yourself an object of worship. We need to be careful about the contemporary emphasis on self-esteem and self-worth. Our esteem and our worth are to be found in Christ. We are not told in scripture to develop a high or low self-image, but rather an accurate self-image. Even relatives and friends can become idolaters, idol, idols in the idol factories that are our hearts. Jesus said, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Money. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and God. And money, why is money singled out? Because money is literally the currency that allows us to do what our idolatrous hearts want to do. And then covetousness, greed, wanting more, wanting what others have that we don't have. The Bible says put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature including greed which is idolatry. Now, I would just add, friends, whenever we say things like, you know, I don't think God wants, I don't think God wants, fill in the blank. Or, I can't believe in a God who would, fill in the blank. Whenever we say things like that, we're making God in our own image. I don't think God wants, I can't believe in a God that would. Look, he wrote a book, he tells you what he wants. He tells you what he's like, he tells you what he would do. So God must be worshipped as creator. And, in your outline, God must be worshipped in spirit. And in worshipping God in spirit, it means he must be worshipped for who he is. As we said, we must worship God only through his revelation. That passage in Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter that we've looked at, you see there are constant focus on the revelation of God in his words to his people. We know God through his making himself known to us. That's what we mean by revelation. That is how he desires us to worship him, the way he tells us. For the duration of the Old Testament period, there was only his word to worship through. Israel showed their allegiance or their lack of it through their response to his word. And then the New Testament begins and the Messiah has come. Jesus came. Christ came. And Christ was the perfect revelation of God, the perfect making known of God. He was, in the words of the writer of Hebrews, the exact representation of the nature of God. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John one eighteen, Jesus, John one eighteen, tells us that although, quote, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father he has explained him and then colossians 1:15 declares that he is the image of the invisible god and do you know what that word image is in colossians 1:15 it's the greek word icon you've heard that word before right you see it on your computer screens it's what you click on to start a program that icon represents the program christ is the image He's the representation of God. In Christ, we have the revelation of God. And we are to worship God through him, the incarnate word. The word became flesh and through his written word. In John chapter 4, when Jesus met the woman at the well, he said, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him Must worship him in spirit and truth. That is, God is spirit, is the foundation for the command to worship God in spirit. And that is simply to define the essence of God. Augustus Hopkins Strong, some of you know that name, is a famous theologian. I have a really thick systematic theology book that he wrote. And it has the tiniest font print on it. But he said this, God is that infinite and perfect spirit in whom all things have their source, support, and end. And so we do not add physical images to his worship and we do not go beyond what he has made known about himself in worship. God must be worshipped for who he is and I say in your outline, he must be worshipped by those who are his. True worship requires a new life. True worship requires a new life. A new life out of which we worship with our entire person, mind, will, and emotion. But if you don't have this new life and this renewed mind and this regularly renewing mind, then you cannot truly worship God. Did you know unbelievers cannot worship Unbelievers can observe worship. There may be unbelievers in this room now observing worship. We're delighted that you're here. But an unbeliever cannot worship. And just as an aside, why would churches design worship for people who can't do it? Why would you design worship for unbelievers? The Bible says this put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. Ephesians 4 says similarly, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so only those who have this kind of mind, only those who have been changed and are being changed by God can actually worship. And worship of God requires the mind rather than just the emotions, rather than just glandular So it should not be, friends, I felt the presence of God or God was there or negatively there was no conviction there, meaning I didn't feel it. I had nothing going up and down my spine. That's not the way we determine and evaluate worship. We determine and evaluate worship based upon truth. And we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Love, for example, can be commanded because it comes from rational truth. And The more we know of God, the more we've been taught of God, the more meaningful our worship ought to be. Our glands can be manipulated. They can be manipulated by skillful music leaders or skillful evangelists and preachers. And how is God to be worshipped? He tells us in his word through things like public song and praise. That means our songs need to tell us who God is. That means our musicians need to be first theologians. People who write songs need to first know about God. Worship of God will be appreciated when we know who God is. He's to be worshipped, he tells us in his word, through preaching. It's not just something that we endure, but something in which we should delight As we see God extolled in the pages of Scripture. We're worshiping God, friends, and we want to know who he is. And we learn those things through our songs. God-rich songs. And through the proclamation of who he is from his word. So our God must be worshiped as creator. He must be worshiped in spirit. And I say lastly. He must be worshiped reverently. That is... He must be revered as he's worshipped. Feared. In awe of. Now why? Because God takes it seriously. The reason for the commandment. You shall not make for yourselves any image. The reason for this command in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 20 is given in verse 5. For because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now when you see this word jealous, you can actually substitute, same Hebrew word, you can substitute the word zealous. That is, zeal, enthusiasm. And what does God have zeal, enthusiasm for? (laughs) For his own glory. We have the same Hebrew word used in this famous passage in Isaiah 9, predicting the coming of the Messiah hundreds of years later it says he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The jealousy of the Lord for his own glory will make his plan come to fruition. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, I will not yield my glory with another. Failure to worship God rightly has far reaching consequences. Because verses five and six say this, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. One commentator has explained this helpfully this way. The sins of the fathers are punished in the children through becoming the sins of the children. That is, they're not just punished and they didn't do anything wrong themselves. No, they sin themselves. The generations to come who experience the penalty of the father's sin are those, it tells us here, who hate God. Now, we're not told how the father's sins become the children's sins in this passage. But just as an aside, you can can think of that. What's modeled before children gets passed on to children, doesn't it? One. Two, the truth is the people who have a heart for God, who revere God, who fear God, who worship God as he desires, those people are the people that God has saved, the people that God has chosen, the people that God has elected. We were discussing this at family camp briefly, some of us. Have you ever considered how it is that God chooses people in clusters? That very often the children of believing people come to God. Not always. It's God's divine choice, but he is pleased to do that. That's why the Bible says things like we saw on Father's Day last week in 1 Corinthians 7.14. The children of just one believing parent are special, set apart, because they have that great privilege. And God uses that. And so God elects, God elects, and he also elects the circumstances, predestines the circumstances in which people will live their lives. And so we're not told in this passage how, but you can consider theologically some of those ways in which God produces that result. But what we are told is that when the father's sins are visited on the children, it's because the children are sinful themselves. And that's the form in which the father's sins are visited. So all judgment is really deserved by the person who is punished. So that's first. But second, and thanks be to God, because of God's grace, which is finally secured by Christ, the children can confess their own sins and the sins of their fathers and be forgiven and accepted by God. And they can change the trajectory of the next generation. In God's mercy. Leviticus says this if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if then their heart, their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant, says the Lord. So, friends, this issue is so important to God, He made it the second of His Ten Commandments. How he is worshipped. And he cares about how he is worshipped. And it has great consequences in your life and in the lives of Of those that you're modeling before. Here's your take home truth. God must be worshipped. In spirit. And in truth. Let's bow before him. Our father we thank you again for gathering us. We thank you for telling us who you are. We thank you for giving us your word. Telling us what you are like. And Lord, also what you like. So Lord, help us then to be extremely careful. To avoid simply doing what we do because it's what we like. Our gatherings are before you. Our gatherings are for you. And so the one that we consult is you. And then we do those things that are consistent with who you are, and we only engage in those things that you have told us that you want in your worship. We have no authorization to add anything to your worship other than what you have prescribed. So, Lord, help us to be people who see what you have said you want done. You want proclamation made. You want prayers offered. You want your scripture read. You want your people to sing. You want fellowship to take place when your people gather together oh lord help us to be diligent to do those things every time we gather for worship help us lord to do them to the best of our sinful human weak ability and we ask you lord to refine them to improve them but most of all lord that you accept them and that you're pleased with them may we as community bible church never turn to the left or the right may we keep our gaze upon you May we get our instructions from you and then put those instructions into place in our worship and in everything we do in your ministry because, Lord, it's from you and it's all for you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.